What's going on, everyone, and welcome in to this edition of Be Shafe Daily. Brendan Schaefer here with you. It's the evening hours of Sunday, May 21st, 2023. As tonight, we get a chance to break down a wonderful weekend for the St. Louis Cardinals as they took three of four from the Los Angeles Dodgers at Bush Stadium. Thursday night's game we covered, had a podcast that day, missed everything since then in terms of breaking down the way this series against the Dodgers went for the Cardinals. I was in Kansas City over the weekend with my wife for our anniversary, took a little weekend getaway, no baby this time. Baby stayed at the uh, at my in-laws, at, at, at my wife's parents. And so we had a nice chance to celebrate our anniversary. But what that meant was I was not at Bush Stadium over the weekend, nor was I around to break down everything that went on. But figured we ought to try and do a little catch-up tonight. So we will talk, eh, probably not much about Friday's game, given the Cardinals lost that one 5 nothing. Offense didn't show up. Obviously, now, in retrospect, you can look at that first game that we missed. It wasn't the first game of the series. Cardinals won Thursday night at Bush. You can look at that Friday game and the fact that the offense didn't get much done as sort of the aberration, I think, of what the Cardinals have been as a team in recent weeks since they've really begun to turn things around. They've had some games where they haven't scored a ton of runs. To be shut out, a bit of a rarity, at least recently for this team. And it's easy to feel a little better about it now in retrospect when you when you know the way Saturday and Sunday went, not only for the Cardinals, but for the offense in particular, as they get the 6-5 to five win on Saturday and they pile up 10 runs on Sunday. So we're going to talk mostly about those two games and some of the standout performers from those contests. Paul DeYoung was one, certainly. Giovanni Gallegos was one in Saturday's game. What a performance by Gio to come into that game. Everything on the line. Ryan Helsley gave you what he had, but he needed some rescuing in that spot. And the call by the home plate umpire off the outside corner to give Giovanni Gallegos the strikeout and the Cardinals the win. That was something else. So we'll talk a little bit about that game. Uh, Nolan Gorman, I think, might have done something in that game. I can't remember. It was, you know, it was so long ago. Yeah, we got to talk about Nolan Gorman and the way he is asserting himself as a legitimate force among the top hitters in the National League. I mean, incredible stuff from him really all season, but in particular on Saturday. The way he spiked the bat after the home run, that was picture perfect. That was very fitting for what he had just accomplished with the three-run shot. Off of a lefty, by the way, Nolan Gorman is here, and he's here to stay. So just going to kind of break things down all willy-nilly like we tend to do. Stream of consciousness. Don't have a really great plan. I know that probably excites you as a podcast listener, but want to make sure that we get into some of the takeaways from the weekend. As the Cardinals ultimately do what they needed to do to kind of continue gaining ground in the National League Central. Don't look now, but the Cardinals are no longer the worst team in the National League. They are no longer the worst record in the NL Central. In fact, based on percentage points, the Cardinals are in third in the division five games back of the Milwaukee Brewers. They're even in the standings with the Cubs, but the Cardinals have played two additional games compared to Chicago and split both of those. And so by just a couple of percentage points, the Cardinals have third place to themselves in the National League Central, but the Cubs also five games back. That'll all sort itself out by the end of the season when everybody plays 162. But for right now, could you have imagined the Cardinals being in this good of a spot? And I get it. There's still six games below 500. But doesn't this just feel like a completely different team right now? Could you have imagined when they were, what, 10 and 24? Which was not all that long ago. About two weeks. I mean, they've gone 11 and 3 since that time, if I'm getting my my records right. I think 10 and 24 was about the doldrums. I think that was the basement for where the Cardinals were in terms of winning percentage. And they've gone on a heater ever since. Winning multiple series. I think, what's that, four or five series in a row? They've leveled out a little bit with the way they, uh, you know, they, they coming into this homestand, Cardinals were, I believe it was 6-13 in home games this season. Brutal. Which kind of explains why I was calculating in a group message with some Cardinals fans. They were saying, oh, I'm 3-0 and this year when I go to games. It's like, that's great. 
well done. Maybe you're the good luck charm. I was trying to calculate my percentage, and I think I was like six. The Cardinals were like six and twelve when I go to games to cover them, and so uh, yeah, something something about that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm the problem. I'm the problem. It's me. I don't know. But the Cardinals have begun to level things out. They're six games below. They're 21 and 27. Still uh, a bit of a climb left ahead of them, but it's not insurmountable anymore, is it? We talked about the fact that for the Cardinals to make something of this season, you know, when they were 10 and 24, it was, well, are they going to fire the manager? What are they? What needs to be done to change things? And I hate to give credit to the Cardinals for the ridiculous way in which the Wilson Contreras stuff was handled, but it did kind of coincide with the Cardinals making a turnaround. And so, I mean, I think we can look back on that period. And again, the entire time we said, hey, this can end fine for the Cardinals. This can be something that works out. It doesn't look good from an optics perspective, but it can. It, it, the result can be the one they're looking for. And I think that's what we've seen. But it's interesting to, you know, Correlation does not equal causation, et cetera, et cetera. But it is interesting to look at the fact that the Cardinals really did begin to kind of turn things around around that same time. Like that was the Detroit Tigers series in which all that sort of uh, came to a head, if I'm recalling correctly. And the Cardinals got the win in the third game of that series on a Sunday. And that sort of catapulted them into Chicago, into being able to uh, just rattle off some series wins and get to where they are right now, which is five games behind. And you had some help, too, from the division leaders. The Pirates, I think, were leading at the time. And they have fallen into a complete tailspin. The Cardinals are probably going to catch them, eh, not before the end of May. Cardinals are still four games back. But they're going to catch them certainly before July 1. And uh, probably by mid-June. Again, four games, we can't just assume it doesn't disappear overnight. If the Cardinals were to lose a couple in a row, which I think, you know, is possible. <laughs> we can't act like they're going to win every series for the rest of the season. That's not realistic. Eventually, the Cardinals are going to have a another part of their season where they struggle a little bit. And when that happens, it, you know, the Pirates might win a couple in a row then. It gets really difficult. And that's why we really stressed how, hey, if you're 14 games below 500, you cannot afford to carry on this way for much longer, barring just an incredible comeback where you chew up a lot of a lot of ground at once and by winning you know 11 of 14 or whatever it's been that's exactly where the Cardinals are right now it, it took something like this to get them back to a place of okay you can at least sit in this cushy middle for a little bit and be all right like the Cardinals as long as they're five games back or so like a month could go by and they could still be five games back and you go all right well they're in the mix they're in the mix, but where they were, it just, you, you couldn't sit there for very much longer because even at five back, there's no guarantee that two, three days don't go by and it turns from five to seven, seven and a half or eight really, really quickly. The Cardinals are still in that position where that is a plausible outcome for a given stretch, a given series, a given week, whatever the case might be, but it definitely feels a lot different now. It feels like, okay, you can at least mentally reset and recognize that the Cardinals didn't lose their season with the April and early May that they had. We didn't know that for a while. It seemed like, well, maybe, maybe they will. Maybe this will be the, maybe this will be all she wrote for the Cardinals season. Now I think they've, they've gotten enough winning under their belt that it it looks like that's not going to be the case. They're at least within striking distance and they can find a little bit of equilibrium. But still a long way to go. The The thing, though, that makes you feel good about it, that makes you have a little bit of confidence, I think, if you're a Cardinals fan at this point in time, it's just the offense, man. The offense and how ridiculously good they might end up being should give you a lot of confidence. Like I said, you had the, the game on Friday where you were shut out, but then you go score six, you score 10 today in the 10-5 to five win on Sunday, and how can you not? be riding the vibes if you're a Cardinal fan. They're fifth in run scored in Major League Baseball for all the struggles they had early in in the season with runners in scoring position and things like that. They couldn't get it going. Now they rank fifth in Major League Baseball, second in the National League with 245 runs scored. They trail the Red Sox by 13 runs and the Dodgers by 15. And then it'll be very difficult to catch the Rangers or the Rays, but hey, long way to go. 
both those teams are above 290, 290 and 297 on the season. But the Cardinals are now demonstrating that that productive run-scoring prowess that we kind of believed would be there. They're demonstrating it on a more regular basis that allows you to think, okay, this now might be the real version of the Cardinals. And whatever it is that we saw in April and early May was the aberration. That was the thing that needed fixing. It wasn't who they are. They're starting to find their stride. They're starting to hit their groove a little bit. And I think that identity is coming through. That identity, we've talked about it, I think, going back into the spring, that, yeah, the way this team profiled, it's more going to be a team that, yeah, they do have to mash to get where they want to go. They're going to have to outslug teams, and you can be okay with that, and you can live with that if you get the production, and if your pitching does just enough. And I think they're settling into a place where they're finding a rhythm with that. So we'll get in and talk about some of these games, especially Saturday and Sunday from the weekend. Before we do that, though, I want to remind you guys to subscribe to the new YouTube channel. Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, is the channel on YouTube. We'll post this uh, audio on there in video form as well for folks that uh, prefer to take in the show via YouTube. Follow the show on Spotify, Be Shaped Daily on Spotify, and uh, we're on Apple Podcasts as well. Appreciate you guys, as always, for joining me. Apologize if I sound a little muffly. I, I think I'm dealing with some allergies. Allergies. Spent a lot of time outside this weekend, and man, it just ate me up. I feel like uh, the seasonal thing is getting me, so... Hopefully that's just uh, short-lived and we can get through that. But if I sound a little muffly, that's why. All right, let's talk a little bit about Saturday, and then we'll get into Sunday as well. Just the productivity that you're getting from the Cardinals offense, really good to see. National game on Saturday on Fox, and they get things going in a really positive way with a few early runs. They score in the first, Wilson Contreras with an RBI, and then they tack on a couple more runs there in the second inning, and things were going along very smoothly. Until, of course, you get to the sixth inning. J.D. Martinez happened. Yeah, you probably would have liked to get a little more done on Noah Syndergaard in this game, but, you know, he's not completely washed up. He's still capable. You got the early runs kind of from there, let it go. ERA of 5.88 for Syndergaard. Yeah, you want to you be able to hit him a little harder than that. Not just kind of fall by the wayside in innings three through six. But J.D. Martinez gets the three-run shot against Michaelis. Michaelis pitched really well. I mean, that's a you take that pitch away, it's a completely different story about the outing for Michaelis. Cardinals needed, and they still do, by the way, consistently need their starters to go deep because we'll talk about the Libertor thing. I, I just don't know what to make of that for Sunday. I know why they did it. I know why Sunday they used Matthew Libertor, Matt Libertor out of the bullpen. I'm seeing more references to him as Matt Libertor. I think that's what we'll call him. I know why the Cardinals did it, but I just don't know that I like it, what they did with Libertor on Sunday. But we'll stick to Saturday here for just a moment. Michaelis really did his job, efficient enough to get through seven. But the reason that they need those kind of outings is because the bullpen has been taxed. We've talked about that throughout the season so far with how bad the starting pitching was in the first month, month plus, and the fact that they weren't getting hardly any six-inning outings from those guys. The bullpen has had to take more of a load and, and carry that tax forward. Now they've got one fewer reliever, which is why they use Libertor on Sunday out of, out of relief. But because of having six starters around, there is a limitation. I know people say, well, why do they have a third catcher here? It's just ridiculous. Now that Wilson Contreras is back to catching, why do you need the third catcher, Trace Barrera, to still be on the roster? Well, you don't. But you can't replace him with a reliever because the new rules when they went to the 26-man roster and post-COVID and everything, 13 pitchers, 13 position players, that's the balance that it's got to be. I think they could have an extra position player if they want to. I could be wrong about that. But I know they cannot have 14 pitchers. And so they couldn't swap out a third catcher for a reliever. Believe me, if they could, they would have <laughs> done it immediately because they are feeling the strain of the bullpen crunch. So good on Miles Michaelis in that game on Saturday to give him seven and to be as efficient as he was. And yeah, JD Martinez got him, but credit to Miles for going back out, getting that seventh inning clean and setting up the uh the fireworks from the late portions of that game. Nolan Gorman. 
what can we say about Nolan Gorman that has not already been said? Incredible stuff by Gorman to hit that three-run home run when the Cardinals needed it. I mean, that was as animated as I think I've ever seen Nolan Gorman when he slams the bat. I mean, that wasn't a bat flip. That was a bat spike, and he earned it, man. Nolan Gorman, he has been sensational this season. He got that start against Julio Urias on Thursday against the lefty. Second start of the season against a left-handed pitcher. The first one, though, was Wade Miley, and he only faced Wade Miley once in that in that game before Miley left with a lat injury. So that one really doesn't count. But Thursday, he got the first chance and, and hit a home run, had a great game, a couple of hits off Urias in his first two at-bats, including the homer. And then you see him do it against a lefty reliever. I mean... Listen, after the Urias game, it was like very clear, this guy's an everyday player for us. And I know he didn't play on Sunday, but that we'll, we'll explain that, and there's a reason for that. I think it's fine. Didn't play against Kershaw on Sunday. But very clear after that Thursday performance by Gorman that, okay, this guy is an everyday player now. However you thought of him before as sort of prescribed to those platoons, the Cardinals are no longer going to to operate that way with Nolan Gorman. And rightfully so, because this guy might just be a complete hitter. And I go back to, and we talked about this on Thursday night, but I go back to the question I asked him then as to whether in the offseason with all this work that he put in, was there anything or how much of it specifically was was catered toward improving his approach against left-handed pitching? Because the Cardinals didn't use him a ton against lefties in 2022, his rookie season. And obviously, Albert Pujols being around, fighting for those ABs at the DH position played a part in that. And that was not a fight that Nolan Gorman was going to win, quite honestly, down the stretch of the season, to the extent that Gorman wasn't getting the at-bats against righties either. And they sent him to AAA at one point in September. When September call-ups are happening, you think, oh, the AAA guys will come here. And the opposite happened. He was optioned. I don't even know if AAA was playing anymore at that point, and he was optioned. It was weird. They might have been playing. It doesn't matter. Nolan Gorman was was kind of the guy that fell by the wayside last year and really just didn't they, – they never really did give him a look against lefties in 2022, but I, I'm looking at the numbers now. He was 4 for 19, 4 for 19 in 23 plate appearances, 211 average. The on-base was actually decent. He had drawn four walks in the 23 plate appearances. 348 on base. And a 316 slug, though. A couple doubles. No home runs, but a low slugging percentage for a low batting average. A 664 OPS against lefties. But, like, I think think we remember it being worse than that, right? Like, the narrative on Gorman coming into the season was, oh, I mean, he can't hit lefties. But maybe that wasn't entirely fair, which is why I think he answered my question on Thursday the way that he did. He said, no, it really wasn't catered specifically that way. I just was all around trying to be prepared for whatever might come this season. And he kind of reminded me and reminded fans, I think, that, hey, last year didn't get a lot of chances against lefties. And in the minors, I think the splits were similar. And so we kind of maybe just baked into our minds that, yeah, Nolan Gorman against lefties, that's just not a matchup you want. But honestly, like 664 OPS relative to his 725 OPS against righties that he had in 290 plate appearances, like he played a ton against righties, 23 plate appearances against lefties. They just really protected him. But if you think about it, yeah, low batting average, but four for 19 is a small sample. And a couple of doubles in there, drew four walks, had actually had a higher OBP on base against lefty pitching than righties last year. But again, super small samples, so not something that you read too much into. But like, given the way the Cardinals so fervently protected him against lefties and didn't really let him face him even early this year, I think he was 0 for his first 9 against lefties, but that's such a small number. That was about, you know, you're a quarter of the way through the season before they even gave him his first start against a lefty. I think that's about right with the numbers and, and what it what it bore out so far. And so you you have a guy who's potentially an all-star candidate and 
if you OPS a thousand, I don't care if they know your name to begin the season, but they'll know it by the end. MVP voters will. That's MVP candidate. That's a guy who's going to finish in the top ten in MVP. If you OPS over a thousand, I don't even care what else you do. I don't care if you play defense at all. And Gorman, as we've seen, has turned himself into a really solid defender too. But I mean, you've got a guy with that situation that he was on pace for about forty at bats, maybe at most, against lefties all season. Until they started uh, kind of softening their stance on, hey, we can give him some some opportunities against lefties. They do it with Urias, uh, Urias on Thursday, and he passes with flying colors to where it's like, all right, that's the second time in a week they've done it. He has this kind of game. Game on. We're gonna we're gonna put him out there regardless, and I think that's the right decision. Makes the squeeze on guys like Tommy Edmond and Brendan Donovan a little more substantial. You haven't noticed it yet because. Half the infield, or pardon me, half the outfielders are on the injured list for this team: Carlson, O'Neill, and and Walker and Triple A. So they've been able to manage it because they can put these these guys in the outfield. Edmund and Donovan, they're athletic enough to do it, and so you don't really notice. That's a conversation that's going to come down the way, though, if if some of these guys come back and demand playing time, which in Carlson's case I think he will, in O'Neill's case I don't. When he comes back, I have no idea what to expect. We'll talk about Oscar Mercado tonight as well. That's obviously a guy that we have got to get into. Do we have a new, you know, we went with uh, hashtag everyday Dylan. We have every game Gorman. Is it uh, every match Mercado? We got to decide that on tonight's show. But another factor with Gorman in there every day is Paul DeYoung continuing to do his thing. Also puts a squeeze on guys like Tommy Edmond and Brennan Donovan. But Nolan Gorman has done everything offensively and really defensively, but I think it's only ever been about can he sustain some success against lefties to merit his inclusion in there every day. And maybe it took guys like Tyler O'Neill and Dylan Carlson being injured because both of those would project to do better against lefties. And I know they're outfielders, but you got to kind of let go of that. And I think a lot of Cardinals fans understand this by now, but because you have infielders who can play outfield and you have a lot of versatility among those guys there are ways to orient the lineup especially with the dh in there that it's all one organism the outfielders kind of coexist with the infielders and you can it's really about the bat that plays and if you can find a way into the lineup because of your strength offensively they'll put you they'll figure out where to put you in the field and so i almost think it's guys like O'Neill and Carlson being injured that has allowed the Cardinals to go, all right, with the way we can structure this thing, we can we, we we're not as strong against lefties as as we were. Alec Burleson hasn't been given opportunities against lefties, rightfully so. But you're looking at that bench going, well, if Andrew Kisner was getting regular time against lefties and the reason that he was in there wasn't anymore because Wilson Contreras can't catch, but it's because we we want the bad in there. If that's the point to which you've gone, you might as well give Nolan Gorman a crack at it. And the Cardinals have done that. And just the the biggest swing of the Cardinals season for me was that by Nolan Gorman on Saturday night when he, he comes up with the uh, three-run shot. He had the surrender Cobra immediately from the, uh, from the Dodgers pitcher there. Uh, I believe that was... Uh, yeah, that was Victor Gonzalez. Yeah, he immediately went into the crouch, man. Nolan Gorman got him, was waiting on that pitch, and he hammered it to right, putting the Cardinals up 6-3, to three, and it's let the euphoria begin, right? Time to celebrate. Not so fast. That was not the case as Ryan Helsley, he had the eighth inning, comes back out for the ninth. You figure, hey, this is the perfect situation. Ali Marmol is not going to worry about Helsley going six outs. He could do that. He's done it before. This is a game you've got to win now that Nolan Gorman has handed it to you. But Helsley in the ninth just was not the same. Had a good eighth. Couldn't do it in the ninth inning. And Geo comes out for the rescue, man. It was runners on second and third. Nobody out. And Gallegos comes up with his biggest performance maybe of his career. That might be forgetting some big ones that he's had, but certainly this season, I don't think Gio has been any more clutch than he was in that spot. You got the assist. Yeah, he pulled the Houdini, but as I tweeted out that night, I think he got uh, some help from his lovely assistant. 
and that was the home plate umpire on that night, Paul Emmel. That was uh, some call on the strike three to end the game. You know, that pitch to me was off the plate. It looked off the plate. It was off the plate, but at the end of the day, once he rings you up, you shake hands, and that's it. But for Cardinals fans who, and I saw this even on Sunday, like that there was some cl- complaining about the uh, the home plate umpire, and uh, Max Muncy was doing a lot of it, actually, but generally inconsistent strike zone on Sunday, I think, was the case. But Saturday, Mookie Betts, if he walks there and Freddie Freeman comes up, that could be a completely different ball game on Saturday. Gio gets the strike three call. And what's crazy is that he gets that call after three basically non-competitive pitches to Betts. He got him 0-2, and then the next three were, I mean, not even remotely close. And so a lot of times what you see is an umpire will sort of punish a pitcher for that on a subsequent pitch that might be close. But Emil thought that was too close to take, and Gio gets the call. Cardinals win. Huge sigh of relief because, again, it would have just been a shame to waste it from Nolan Gorman, from from the the growth that he shows in that moment to to take another lefty deep and to kind of establish himself, I think, in the, the grander conversation of, all right, legit all-star candidacy. Don't count him out. Don't count it. Don't put a ceiling on it, basically. I'm not saying he's going to win an MVP, but, like, what he's doing, that was the moment where – the MVP notion feels sustainable all of a sudden with Nolan Gorman. Maybe that's premature for some people. I don't really, I thought that that was, again, I mean, you get into a situation against a lefty reliever, guys catered to be able to get you out as the thought process. And he had already homered off of Urias earlier in the week. And then you do that. I Don't put a limitation on it is where I am with Nolan Gorman. And now I kind of want to see where he is in the context of others in the National League. Statistically, to see if I'm crazy here. Alonzo leading in homers with 17. But Gorman is third with 13 bombs. Third in the National League. He's second in RBIs to Alonzo. He's got 39. Alonzo's at 41. But just kind of like with Paul Goldschmidt and Alonzo, when they were kind of going back and forth on some statistical categories last year, Alonzo 850 OPS, he's empty calories. He's hitting 228. Nolan Gorman, 1031 OPS. Only two guys in the National League have an OPS greater than 1,000. It's Gorman and Ronald Acuna. They're both tied at 1031. Gorman is slugging 640, and he's hitting 302. If Nolan Gorman hits for a 300 average, he is an MVP candidate because the power is inevitable. He's going to hit for the power if he... Like, he's not going to hit 302 by hitting a bunch of singles. Nolan Gorman is a loud, damaging swing. That's what he brings to the table. 13 home runs this season to go along with eight doubles. He's 42 for 139. Nolan Gorman is absolutely in that conversation as of right now. And to do it the way that he did against the Dodgers over the weekend, didn't play Sunday, but in the other games, that was enough to tell me, all right, he's got some staying power. This this could be a legitimate thing, and I all basically all star to say all star candidacy may not be enough of a of a way to heap praise on a Nolan Gorman for the way he started. So we'll see what he's able to sustain, but he looks really good right now. But it's so interesting. I go back to that the the question I asked him Thursday, where he said, "Yeah, it, it's not that I was catering it any of my off season work specific to left right and trying to improve against lefties." I just really didn't get a lot of opportunity against lefties last year. And so it just may be that he he's made that step forward and that leap as a hitter, and he can do it left, right, doesn't matter. Now, will he have moments probably where the lefties that, that pitch him tough that make sure not to feed him a strike and they, they can get him low and away with some, some breaking stuff? Yeah, that's probably going to happen. But I think his discipline is so much better this year that when they throw those pitches, they're not in the strike zone. And when they're not, he he can do a better job of laying off of them than maybe he did at times last year. And so I think that could be the difference maker for Nolan Gorman that could allow him to really elevate his game. And we'll see if he's able to sustain it uh, with a little bit of consistency. And if that's the case, you've got a Cardinal lineup 
Again, I talked about this team that could lead the league and run scored. Here's why. We know Arenado and Goldie, and Goldie's going through a, a little bit of a tough stretch right now. But guys like Arenado picking him up with the way he's he's come on strong. Big day for Arenado on, on Sunday going three for four with three runs scored. We can kind of transition a little bit into Sunday's game. Newpar, Goldie, and Wilson Contreras, one through three in the lineup, went 0 for 14 with just one time on base. It was a walk to Newpar. 0 for 14 with a walk and six strikeouts. Each of them struck out twice. And yet the Cardinals scored 10 runs. Arenado, three for four. Tommy Edmond, three for four. He's up to 823 on the OPS. What a weekend for him. Great series for Tommy Edmond against the Dodgers. Hitting 287 with an 823 OPS. He's batting sixth in your lineup. Incredible. It just shows how deep this lineup is. Again, you've got Goldsmith and Arnado I was I was getting into. And you expect those guys to be MVP candidates. And you, you expect Wilson Contreras to, to come along. 727 OPS. He's got more in there. He's had his moments. But overall, there's still, I think, more to be shown from Contreras on that five-year contract. Going through it a little bit right now. But if Nolan Gorman adds to what you already expect in Arenado Goldsmith, man, oh, man. And that's, again, before you get into the Contreras of it all and the Edmund and Newt Barr, who's going through it a little bit, a little bit right now, too, 755. He was, he was around 800 for the OPS. So Newt Barr's got to pick it up, no question. No question about that. But Paul DeYoung, man, Tommy Edmund, these guys are carrying – when the guys at the top are struggling. DeYoung goes two for three with four runs scored. He walked four runs driven in on Sunday. Donovan one for three. And then Oscar Mercado, man, how about him? Three for four with five RBIs. He's hitting 525. He's only played like three games, but he does everything for the Cardinals in that series against the Dodgers. Five runs driven in on his three hits Sunday. It just seems like every time he came up, there are runners on base, and he poked a single. That's all it takes is getting that base knock. He had a couple of hits and uh, a double as well to go three for four with five RBIs. OPSing 1272. Listen, how much fun has it been to watch Oscar Mercado's skill set play out? Five two-out RBIs, by the way, too, today for Mercado. That's great. I just kept feeling like, hey, if he just puts the ball in play... He's got the speed where good things can happen. And I'm not saying this is like a career renaissance for him at age 28 that suddenly he's going to become an all-star kind of player. You know, I think the hit tool, he showed over the course of his career with with Cleveland what what it is. Decent enough contact-oriented guy, but he's got a 239 career average, a 684 OPS. Not a ton of pop in the bat. But like if if he's a guy who OPS is 700 or so, let's say he can he can jump up a little bit from that 680. 684 career OPS. Let's say it's 700. Give him a little bit of a of a boost there. Has some juice being back with the team that drafted him. We've seen that before. I think that's realistic to expect. If that's what it is, I mean again, we love Dylan Carlson here on the on the podcast, but that's like Carlson wasn't OPSing 700 before he got hurt. I don't think he was. I don't think he quite got there. But Oscar Mercado can bring similar type of defense as what we've seen Dylan do. He certainly has more speed than Dylan Carlson. Not as much power, we wouldn't think, but Dylan Carlson also hasn't produced a ton of power this season. Right? It took him a while to even get that first home run. We think the Cardinals should be leaning a little bit more into the, the Dylan Carlson's when he's healthy and available, which is, a, as we've seen and heard when it comes to Tyler O'Neill, very important. Availability is the best ability. And right now, Tyler's not having that, which I think is wearing on the Cardinals, to be quite honest with you. But you know who is available and he's out there is Oscar Mercado. Yeah, I mean, Dylan was has an OPS of 628. Carlson has not had a great offensive season. But with what he brings defensively, we were all about playing him every day and seeing if maybe that could jumpstart the bat as well. Give him a little bit of a boost of confidence because early it sure seemed like the Cardinals were willing to extend that latitude to Tyler O'Neill. He asked to play center field. They let him. 
They said, hey, take this job and run with it. They gave him every opportunity. And Tyler just, for whatever reason, has not been able to to kind of get into that rhythm. But it seemed like those opportunities for O'Neill and guys like Burleson in the early going were kind of coming at the expense of a Dylan Carlson who just wasn't getting the chances. Jordan Walker was around then too. So, I mean, the squeeze was legitimate in terms of the, the opportunity for Carlson. And they eventually, we, we got the everyday Dylan thing going and he got more opportunity. Then he got injured. And so we'll see what that looks like when he comes back. Lars Newpar's done a nice job in center in the interim. But the Cardinals needed somebody else that could play center as well because they've got no off days between, you know, a week ago and June 1st. June 1st is the the first off day coming, I believe. And so they needed somebody on the roster who could play center field without having to to shove Donovan or Edmund there, which you could do, but you really don't want to have to do that. And so Mercado made a lot of sense. Now, I don't think he has any options left, which makes it a little bit tricky because you expect, all right, well, O'Neill's going to be ready at some point soon. Over the last week, there were all these rumors or you know reports about, yeah, we expect him to start a rehab soon. That hasn't happened, though. But the thought process was, okay, O'Neill should be back soon. Carlson, you know, he barely needed the stint on the IL. The, the way it sounded, they really waited and waited as long as they could to Wednesday to decide to put him on the injured list. And so he should be back within a week to 10 days, you would think. So what that means with the corresponding moves, you're looking for somebody that can play some center field, can fill in in a pinch, but it's a short-term stay probably for that guy on the roster. They give Mercado the shot, but I tell you what, he has taken it and has run with it. And if you told me right now, hey, choose between what Mercado is bringing or what you would expect Tyler O'Neill to produce when he returns, I know who I'm picking, I and it's not the guy that's currently injured and has been injured frequently throughout his career and had concerns about was he hustling at times this season and had been given every opportunity to take the center field job and run with it and just had not produced. I'm taking the guy who's got a similar skill set in a lot of ways. Mercado does not have the power that Tyler O'Neill has. But you know what he does have is he's out there. He's out there and he's playing right now. And I think that's counting for something. If you're the Cardinals man, that counts for something. It has to. The way their season's gone, you don't have time. You don't have time anymore to to wait for it to be perfect for Tyler O'Neill. And like I'm not saying they're gonna Tyler O'Neill's gonna be ready to come off the IL and they're not gonna bring him back. I don't necessarily see that as a, a realistic scenario, and I don't think that's what they should do. But here we are, days and days are going by, games are being played, and Tyler O'Neill is still not out there. He he went on the IL with the back issue originally. For whatever reason, he's not back yet. I don't I don't know. I wasn't at Bush this weekend, like I said, but it sounds like, you know, when you when you hear John Mozeliak on 101 ESPN late last week with Brandon Kiley, where Mozeliak said basically being available is a skill. And if you're not out there, not available to your team, that take that into consideration. So I don't know what the Cardinals would look to do. I have started to say, and on, on the, the last live stream we did, People are always asking, well, who's who's trade bait? Who could potentially be dealt among that outfield group? I think it's different for different guys. Like Dylan Carlson or Alec Burleson could have value to, to another organization because they've got team control attached. And so if a if another team likes the talent and, and the skill set, then you could say, all right, well, those guys would have value because they'll be affordable, cost-controlled for a number of years. It's not the case with Tyler O'Neill. He's just got next year before free agency, and he's already getting paid, you know, decent sum. I don't know, makes a few million, whatever it is, through arbitration. But he's only got the one more year left, and then he'll be a free agent. And so if you're a rebuilding team, I don't know that Tyler O'Neill is a headliner in a, a trade package. I just don't think, I just don't know that the interest is going to be there from other teams. And that's if he's playing decently. He's not hitting, and he's not healthy. So I don't really know what the trade value of Tyler O'Neill could be. And yet, I feel like that's the guy that if the Cardinals are looking to make a move, it, you may you may end up with it because Oscar Mercado takes the roster spot. And you say, I don't want to – if I'm Ollie Marmel I, and John Bozalek says, hey, Oscar Mercado doesn't have any options left, but we got to try to pass him through waivers here because, uh, you know, Tyler O'Neill's coming back off the IL or whatever. Because if Carlson came back, 
as soon as he was allowed to on the 10-day IL, Trace Barrera could go back to Memphis and that would be fine. But if it's if if then you get down the road a little further and okay, Tyler O'Neill's ready to come back, we got to send one of these outfielders. I mean, I guess you could go Alec Burleson, but again, he brings something different. He's better against right-handed pitching where O'Neill is I mean, he's struggled regardless. I don't know exactly what his splits are, but as a righty bat, he doesn't profile the same as Burleson does. Burleson's role on the roster is different than O'Neill's or Carlson's role. And so I, I don't know that they want to send Burleson. I know Ollie Marmel likes having Burleson available to him. But if I'm Ollie, I'm looking at Mo, I'm saying, you can take Mercado off the roster over my dead body. Like, it's not happening. And I just, I don't know why you'd want to. Why would you want to take a guy that's producing? Again, he could go on an 0 for 17, and then we have a different conversation. But right now, he's not going to hit 545. But if he is putting the ball in play and taking good at bats and giving you value defensively and giving you value on the bases, Oscar Mercado stays on this team the rest of the summer. I don't know how likely that is to happen, but I kind of thought when they called him up, when they promoted him initially, like if he doesn't have options left, and I don't believe he does, that complicates matters for when what happens when the crunch occurs. And you've also got Jordan Walker in this organization that they want to get time for. But I think, and Oscar said this, uh, you know, he's had the opportunity, for better or worse, to play a lot of different roles in the big leagues. He was a starter with Cleveland for a while, and he's been a guy coming off the bench. And I think he can handle any of those roles well. And it's a good thing because on this team, I think ultimately his value, you think about like a playoff rotation. I want Oscar Mercado on my roster if I'm, or I, I said rotation, I meant roster. I want Oscar Mercado on my roster if I'm in October because he could be a guy off the bench, great defensive replacement option, base running option, could steal a base, can do a lot of different things. His base running has sparked the Cardinals in just the short time that he's been up. So I think it's really, I, I, I would hesitate if I'm the Cardinals even if he does kind of fall off offensively, I think there is value to his role on this team. And that's where I start to get into, all right, if I mean, if you talk about where's Tyler O'Neill's trade value right now, you hate to sell low on a guy that has so much potential. And, and listen, he could very well go and be the next to Rosarena where different stages of their careers, obviously, but O'Neill could go and finally click and get healthy and he could have a 30 home run season and everybody will go, see, Mo's a dummy. But right now, I don't think there are a lot of people that are high on the immediate future of Tyler O'Neill just he's not available. He's not out there. And that's been a theme for him. And so when I look at that, I go, well, if you can get it, bolster the bullpen, something, I would not be surprised to see a deal like that. O'Neill for a reliever that they think can, can add a, another legit arm. And again, I, I don't know which team out there is looking to trade that type of reliever for a Tyler O'Neill. When, when people have talked about trade O'Neill to get, starting pitching help, get a legit starter. We've had the conversation over and over that I don't know that that deal exists for the Cardinals. And if it did, they probably would have made it in the off season. And maybe that's not true. Maybe they really had hope and wanted to build around O'Neill. And that was the way they approached the off season. And now they have to look at it differently with the way it's played out. But I just don't think that there are teams around the league looking at O'Neill and saying, Hey, we can, we're going to give up a, a, a legitimate starting caliber arm that has a little bit of team control attached to him because it doesn't help the Cardinals a lot if it's a rental, especially because they've already got now six guys in their rotation. So I think to where it's gotten, you could look at, say, hey, if you can get a reliever, a, a solid one for Tyler O'Neill, I don't, I'm not saying, you know, bl blank slate, I do it no matter what. As always, it depends on what you're getting for what you're given. But I, I think the Cardinals are in a spot where they might be willing to listen on something like that just because of the way things have gone. And again, it's only been a couple of games, but Oscar Mercado, I think, could fill a role for this team. And you you love the energy and kind of the exuberance and the skill set that he brings to the table. So he's putting balls in play. He's done so in the clutch, which is that a skill, is that luck, is that randomness, whatever it is, you'll take it right now. It's helping the Cardinals win games. So wanted to give credit to Oscar Mercado on the show today, and I'll say play him. Play him every single day while Dylan Carlson is out, I think it started as, hey, you've got to have somebody on the roster that can man center field if Lars Newbar needs a day. But I think it's turned into, he's giving you a spark. Let's see where that goes. On this road trip, man, I, I would see where that goes for sure. And they'll be in Cleveland over the weekend, next weekend. 
a little bit of re- revenge game action. I would I would play Oscar Mercado, man. I would see where that goes. It it might be lightning in a bottle for a week or two, and then he kind of falls back off again. There's a sample size of him being a you know kind of mediocre hitter at the major league level, but he's he's had his moments. I mean, his first year with Cleveland was really good offensively. And he's still just 28 years old. So, again, you don't expect that to be a guy that suddenly he takes off and he finds a second gear of his career and, and really reaches his full potential. But he's been a solid major leaguer in the past, and I think the skill set that he brings to the table is a good fit for what the Cardinals are kind of missing right now in Carlson and, and O'Neill as well, who, uh, if you remove the, the power-hitting aspect of it, O'Neill is, in theory, all of those things that we're talking about from Mercado. Good speed, good defense, take a good at bat. Like a lot of similarities there. The power game makes it completely a, a game changer for O'Neill if he can be out there and can be producing. But right now, that's not the case. And so the Cardinals, I think, are happy to say, hey, we will gladly settle for the guy that's available and is and is giving us a lot of those same qualities, even if he's not going to hit home runs. And I think of the two, if there was a guy that I would say, hey, Neither of these guys are going to be starting in your your top nine in a playoff series or in a playoff game. Which guy would you rather have off the bench? I get it. You might say, well, O'Neal, because he can hit a home run for you. But I would I would argue that the other things Mercado can do and can do reliably, I feel good about if I'm the Cardinals. So we'll see what ends up happening there. But another guy that's helping the Cardinals win games right now is Paul DeYoung. And boy, oh boy, does it feel like that uh, $1,000, man, is ever closer. If you've been following along on B-Shape Daily, my guy Sean from Twitter had tweeted at me saying, hey, if Paul DeYoung has a 750 OPS or better with at least 400 plate appearances, I'll Venmo you $1,000. And then within that same tweet, he said, before I even could reply, because this was all one tweet, he followed that up and said, I'm not even kidding. I'll do it. <laughs> so the, we've we've kind of been having some fun with that on the show. And Paul DeYoung has been having fun Hit home runs and mashing two for three today. I mentioned it four runs scored. Reached via walk as well. Four runs driven in. He's OPSing 954. So on that front, he's he's given us 200 percentage points of cushion on the 750 bet, which wasn't a bet because I never even agreed to it. I didn't have to give up anything. I just, I, I love those kinds of bets. I risk nothing and I stand to gain the world. I'll take it. Sign me up. But Paul DeYoung has been nails, man. And a lot of times it's like with DeYoung, sure, he can hit the mistakes, but when people start really pitching him and and bearing down on him, that's when he kind of fades away. I don't know. So far, so good for Paul DeYoung. I I, I mean, I don't know at what point you would look at it and say, all right, he's done it enough now to where I can say it's sustainable. Like he's not going to have that falling off the cliff routine that we've seen from him over the, the previous few seasons. He's going to keep this going. 2019, he was an all-star and had a 762 OPS. From there, it was 671, 674, 530 last year. Remember, spent a lot of time in Memphis because he just was not producing. And came into this season where he said, quieter swing, not going to do as much of the moving around in the box. Set myself up in a better position to hit. All these things that sounded good on paper, but was it going to be... What what were we going to see in terms of the results? Well, so far, 953 OPS would be by far the, the best of his career, almost 100 points better than the 857 he posted as a rookie in 2017 when he burst onto the scene. Was like barely a shortstop in the minors. Played some shortstop. I, I think to start that year was really his first full season, if I'm not mistaken. And then he next thing you know, he was the Cardinals shortstop, and he was getting that long-term extension. The type that people are now going, hey, what about that for Gorman? What about that for Newpar? What about that for, I mean, we haven't seen those extensions recently because guys like Paul DeYoung had them and the Cardinals are going, yeah, I don't know how many of those we want to have in circulation at once because that one's not really painting out for us right now. But he is, he is a guy having that renaissance at 28, 29 years old. He's in his age 29 season right now. He'll turn 30 on August 2nd. But Paul DeYoung... For as long as he does this, we'll continue to say it. You play him every single day, and he plays a solid shortstop defensively. But if, to have a guy OPSing 950, I mean, Paul DeYoung missed the first few weeks of the season, which is why he's only got 88 plate appearances, which is why we can't go gaga just yet. 
He's played in 23 games, and he's basically been an everyday guy since he's been healthy. And the Cardinals, you know, what are they at right now? Uh, 21 and 27. So he's played in about half the team's games. They've played 48 games, six more games. They will have gotten through a third of the season. And he's played in 23 of the 48. But he's been basically an everyday guy since he's gotten here, and that's going to continue. He's in 282, 364 on base with a 590 slug. Like, yeah, he'll hit the mistakes, but if they if they double that, double the 88 plate appearances, and where's he at? That's what I really want to know. I'm not ready to just say, oh, he's he's going to be this guy, because I think he, I still say he's got to come down from a 950 OPS. I don't think he'll OPS 900. I don't think he'll OPS 850. I think he can be 800 OPS. But I think he's going to fall off. But what happens the first time the league starts to go? All right, here's the adjustment you make against Paul DeYoung. We've done, you know, we've we've seen this song and dance before. What does Paul DeYoung do then? Because if he's able to still produce enough power, which is sometimes that's just hitting mistakes. He is as good of a mistake hitter in the Cardinals lineup, I think, as there is. That includes everybody. Arnauto, Goldie, Paul DeYoung hammers mistakes. If you stop getting some mistakes for a while, what happens? Can he draw enough walks to force them, force pitchers to get back in the strike zone against him and then make that next mistake where he can jump on it and continue to be a powerful force? Because right now he's got seven home runs in about 90, 92, 88. I think it's updated now, updated from earlier today on Baseball Reference. So if it's 88 plate appearances, what do those next 88 look like if they pitch him better? Can he still sustain enough success to be, he doesn't have to hit seven homers every 88 plate appearances, but if he can hit three or four even and hit his doubles and, and take his singles and take his walks, still not walking a ton, but I think doing it enough, eight walks and 88 plate appearances is, is solid. I mean, he's been, he's been out of his mind so far. What happens when that first little bit of adversity comes? That's what I'm looking for for Paul DeYoung, but right now, you look at this Cardinals lineup, and we've talked about it, how this team could be one of the most elite offenses in baseball, and that's one of the reasons. I mean, I wasn't counting on Paul Young when I was making those comments late in March, early April, about what this team could be. I wasn't counting on Paul Young at all in that. So add him to a Goldsmith, Arenado. Now you've got Nolan Gorman in there, to a Newt Bar, to a Contreras, and the expectations for those guys to an Edmund who's now, you know, 823 OPS is one of the highest on the team. He's behind Goldie, he's behind Gorman, obviously, and behind Paul Young, of all people. Arnado's getting there. Arnado's up to 782. I told you he'd be at 800 before you know it. Arnado's probably going to OPS 900, honestly. That might be really a, a tough ask because he could he could have a 900 OPS the rest of the season and still wouldn't. You know, he'd be 860 or so because of the, the really slow start that he had. And that would be a huge accomplishment. But Arenado isn't even quite to that 800 level just yet. Paul Young's at 954. So add that to Edmund and to, to Donovan's at 651, and he's got a long ways to go. But I, I still feel like Donovan ends up leveling out as a 725 to 750 guy in OPS. He's better than he's played so far. Like, But that just goes to show you that 1 through 8 or 9, the Cardinals are just they're elite very few holes in a lineup like that if Paul DeYoung can be not just like the 750 OPS or the 775 that I kind of think he levels out to be 800 or so you know he, he could OPS 750 the rest of the year he'll probably still land around 770 or so if he did because of the the strong start kind of buoying him up if that if he's that guy the Cardinals are a really really good offense if he's 950 I mean, the the Cardinals are out of their minds offensively, which is why I look at this team. and I, The pitching, we haven't really talked about the pitching a ton tonight. I gave some credit to Michaelis. Uh, Flaherty was, you know, kind of back to his old ways a little bit today. Uh, four walks, but one of them, there was one in, in the fifth there that should have given him the win. He would have qualified for the win, I believe. I think the Cardinals were up at that time. Yeah. So he would have been able to get get himself a win instead of leaving the game after four and two-thirds. And Verhagen comes in, and he balks in a run that ends up getting charged to Flaherty because of it. 
and then does a really nice job thereafter. Gets a strikeout, two mornings. Verhagen goes two and a third, three strikeouts, no hits, no walks. Druver season back on, question mark. He's looking a lot better recently. 3.60 ERA. You'll take that from from kind of, I think, the expectations people had of him coming into the season. He began to exceed those, and then he started to look washed again. I think he's back. Looks solid. Solid middle reliever sometimes in leverage. That's where he's going to be from the right side for this team. But if Flaherty's four walks, he had one that I think should have been strike three, which would have gotten him out of the fifth, which would have meant, I think, only two runs total against him at that point for Hagen allowing the third via walk, or balk, I should say, after he came in. So Flaherty got jobbed a little bit there, but Cardinals fans, we got we to agree for you guys. You can't complain about the umpires after Saturday. There's got to be a moratorium, like a week at least, because that called third strike on for, for Gio on Mookie Betts won y'all a game. But yeah, Jack Flaherty, I mean, four walks, be more efficient. Probably should have gotten through five, but he got a, got kind of jobbed on that call. That's fine. But not a lot to say about the pitching. The offense can be the thing that carries this Cardinals team. There's no doubt about it. But I do want to speak on Libertor for just really briefly before we uh, wrap up this podcast. Libertor came into pitch as a reliever on Sunday, ended up going one inning, gave up two earned runs, walked a guy, allowed a hit, hit a batter. Ali Marmel was out to talk to him on a 2-0 count after he walked. He hit the first batter he saw and then walked the next one and started out 2-0 on the third guy, I think it was. And Ali runs out there. I don't know what he said to him, but it was like really some tense moments there because Libertor, this is kind of his side day, his his bullpen session day. And he was out throwing in the bullpen. I think he threw some, sat down, got back up, was throwing his bullpen session. And because of where the Cardinals are with relievers, because they're carrying Libertor as a number six starter, they kind of need the innings. And so the Cardinals thought, hey, this will be no problem. We can allow Libertor, who's got to throw today anyway. Now, when you throw your bullpen session, it's not always that 100% intensity, but you're you're getting your work in. And yes, it's meaningful, but you can never simulate game action kind of the way that Ricky Horton talked about it on the radio was like when I was a starting pitcher, you know, you, you throw those bullpen days. You're not, if you put those out in front of, in front of fans in the stadium and it counts, it's just different because you're not feeling 100% typically on those side days. You know, you're, you're still recovering from your last start and things like that. And so I thought, boy, that's a risky way to go with Matthew Libertor. I don't really think that's the way I would have done it. I, I get the need. I understand there's a bit of an innings crisis out there in the bullpen when you have a starting staff that hasn't gone very deep and you add a sixth starter, which means you take away an eighth bullpen man, an eighth reliever. They're they're trying to kill two birds with one stone for Libby there. Get an inning out of him so that you can ease the burden a little bit on the other guys. And it almost backfires on him. He gives up a couple of runs, was able to have those score on sacrifice flies after he loads the bases. All's well that ends well. His ERA goes from from zero to three, but gets out of it and by all accounts didn't get injured or anything like that. But man, I just I don't I don't like the vibe of it because he gave you five innings and he gave you a great start. The way I would like to see the Cardinals reward that is by starting him exactly six days later. If you're in a six man rotation, six days later it's a Libby. And if you if you gotta figure something else out when it comes to the the relief core and maybe you have to send somebody down or whatever, I get that there's no easy answer. I just, man, I just don't think that messing around with a guy that could be one of your top-line starters the rest of the way, and certainly in 2024, it just feels like you're yanking him around a little bit. And it's not without merit. Like, there's, they're not doing it for no reason. They really do have, when, when you go a reliever short because of the six-man rotation thing, it does have an impact, but... I just didn't love it. I did not love it, and I didn't love it even more as it was happening, which I've been saying for days and days, like it would be lunacy if the Cardinals don't put him out there for his next start. But what they're going to do, the outing Sunday does not preclude him from starting on this road trip. I think it just bumps it back a little bit. And like I said, the Cardinals can kind of pick and choose what's the best matchup, what are the, when do they want to throw him out there. That's basically what they're allowing themselves to do by using him as a reliever on Sunday. So he will still pitch on the road trip, it just won't be exactly six days, I don't think, after the previous start. It'll be a little bit modified, and so they can set up the matchups and slot it in the way they want with the other five starters, 
who will be on full rest, obviously, and so no issues there. And it really could be a case of all's well that ends well. There, there may be no negative repercussions at all for using Libby as a reliever, and it may be saved an inning on somebody else's arm that allows the Cardinals to now have more success over the ne- over the coming week, you know, and, and everything's fine there. I didn't love it, though. I get why they felt they had to do it. I just didn't think it was I, – I think it's an example of you're trying to do too much. It's a little too much for me. And in a season that has seen the Cardinals do too much in several areas, whether it's – Tyler O'Neill is a center fielder for reasons beyond human comprehension. Well, no, it's the analytics, and they say, give me a break. It does, Dylan Carlson's your better center fielder. No. Stop this with Tyler O'Neill. They eventually did. Jordan Walker's going to be on the team, and all of these great things about how he's mature and all these things. Oh, but now he's not. Four weeks later, he's not, and, and he's hitting too many ground balls, as if you didn't know in spring training that that's what he was going to do because it, it was, those were his tendencies. You saw him then. What changed? And then don't get me started on the whole Wilson Contreras not catching any more things. So, like, the Cardinals have made some suspect decisions this season. They have. And some of them have worked out fine. The Contreras one has. Doesn't mean it was handled right. Doesn't mean it was that they deserve a pat on the back for it. By no means. This with Libertor, I think, is a much smaller scale. But to me, it's okay to point it out and go, I don't know, man. I think they're trying to do a little too much here with this one. But we'll see. What do you What do you think? Let me know what y'all think. I'm at bshafer12 on Twitter. Make sure you drop me a comment on Spotify. You can comment on the, uh, the videos and let me know what you thought of this episode. And as well, YouTube, where the comment section is always hot and heavy. Let me know if you're watching this on YouTube or listening. This will just be an audio version on YouTube, but it'll be in video form because that's what YouTube is. But let me know what you think about it with your comments and your thoughts. Make sure to like the video on YouTube as well. And, hey, tell your friends that Brennan Schaefer is on YouTube talking Cardinals and that if they're not here, they're square. Yeah, be there or be square. That's exactly what I want people to know. Appreciate you guys. As always, that is going to do it, though, for this edition of B-Shaped Daily. Thank you guys for watching and listening. We'll have plenty more Cardinals talk to come this week. Some live videos as well for sure as the Cardinals take on the Reds and the Guardians. Hang out with us here on YouTube, Spotify, and the like. We'll talk to you next time on B-Shape Daily. Peace!